You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 117 of the Christian Feminist Podcast our first episode of uh, the year 2020. And tonight we're going to be talking about the Hebrew midwives of Exodus 1. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me tonight are Alexis Neal and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Hi, ladies. Hey. Hey. We're going to run around and just do some quick introductions, um, and so we'll get started with Victoria. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I have a PhD in Literature and Gender Studies from Florida State University, and I currently live in Woodstock, Georgia, with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Thanks. Alexis, how about you? My name is Alexis Neal, and I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, uh, the politics podcast within the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Um, And I uh, teach part-time at Southwest Baptist University, uh, but most of the time I'm hanging out with my two small children. Thanks. I'm Katie Grubbs, and I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. I live in uh, Sugarland, Texas, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and our four children. Um, and at the moment, I am much embroiled in preparing for my Bible study class this spring, um, which I'm very excited about. We're going to be talking about, uh, it's called Legacies of Faith, so we're going to be talking about different women throughout church history, and I'm really looking forward to it. So I think it's going to be awesome. Um, and that's actually a great segue into why we are talking about this topic tonight. Uh, so, uh, a couple of semesters ago, I taught a class at my church um, called Forgotten Gallery, and it was about uh, women in the Bible who don't get taught um, or who have kind of been forgotten. Um, you know, the women who aren't Ruth or Esther or Mary. Um, and who kind of are in the corners. And so one of the very first lesson in that class, we talked about the Hebrew midwives of Exodus 1. And it was so interesting to see all the women in my class, most of whom had been, I mean, had been in church for decades, and a lot of them had never heard this story before um, and were really uh, impacted by it. And, um, and it also always just provides great fruit for discussion because it's a story that brings up really interesting questions about if it's ever okay to lie um, to protect someone else um, or, you know, because you've been told to do something that is against what you, um, what God would, um, would have you do in his law or in his will. So um, that's why I wanted to talk about this topic. Um, Get started section tonight for knowing. Um, I just want to look into the past a little bit like that. And we're going to talk for a few minutes about um, if, you know, what we've heard about these women before, or if we ever have. So that's tonight's first question is, uh, were you ever taught about the Hebrew midwives in the past? And if so, what was the narrative? How was the narrative presented? Uh, I can go first because my answer is quick and easy. 
before I started prepping for this podcast, I don't remember ever hearing or reading this story. And I know I've read it before because I've definitely read the whole Bible through a couple of times. So I know I've read it, but I had zero memory of it. And I'm pretty sure I've never heard a sermon about it. So I I really enjoyed um, prepping for this show because I feel like I learned a lot about something I didn't know about before. I, um, I think I don't remember not knowing this story. Um, but I, I was a pretty big Bible trivia nerd as a kid. Um, and so I was particularly interested in the narrative portions of the text, particularly the old Testament. Um, it's taken me decades of my life to try to acquire some more familiarity with some of the New Testament portions that actually tell me how I should live, but I was very fascinated by all of the names and characters. And so I do remember knowing this story. Um, I don't remember how much it was taught. I'm sure it was taught in Sunday school some of the time. Um, I think when it was presented in a sermon, it would probably be a sermon over more than just Exodus 1, and therefore the focus of the sermon would be more on the narrative uh, involving Moses and the Lord's deliverance of his people through Moses. Um, but I, I do feel like it was there. Um, it wasn't necessarily a, a focal point, but it, but it was there and it was something I was familiar with. I don't ever remember learning this story um, as a kid. And to be honest, I think one reason that the story doesn't get a lot of play, at least in terms of being taught to children or whatever, is because it is a story that involves at least a kind of skirting around the issues, physical issues of childbirth, which people, particularly in the church, I would say, don't tend to be keen to discuss with small children. Um, and so, you know, um, and and in the in the Moses story, which comes right after, um, like Alexis was saying, you you still have some of the same themes of people are trying to kill these boy babies, and you know Moses is able to be saved um, by his mother and sister. So you know you can kind of talk through that particular policy or plan of Pharaoh's without touching on this story as well. Though I think it's a mistake because I think the two together, they should be taken together. Um, so I didn't know it until I was grown either. And I and I had never really looked into it in any detail until I was getting ready to teach it. Um, and that's because I specifically went looking for female characters in scripture who don't get any play, who don't get taught, don't get talked taught don't get talked about i mean in that class we also we had a whole class about um we talked about jl and um the shunamite woman i mean we know we talked a lot about um people who don't get discussed frequently um so to to give a sense of that larger context um of how the story fits into the story of moses um before we actually read and talk about the story of the midwives alexis is going to give us some context um a little bit about what happens at the end of genesis right before the story and then what comes after the midwife story to kind of help us fit it in where it belongs so can you go ahead and uh, and jump into that alexis Sure. So this story fits between uh, sort of the the larger arc of Joseph and then the larger arc of Moses. So in the book of Genesis, we see in the the later part of Genesis, uh, God is creating for himself a people. He starts with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then with Jacob's family, the promise expands from just one chosen son to the whole family. And that's where we get our 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons, Joseph, ends up in Egypt undergoes uh, a lot of difficult circumstances, unjust circumstances. Uh, but um, in in a story that is very similar to what we see later in the story of Daniel, 
uh, he is elevated to a position of trust within the kingdom, partly because the Lord enables him to interpret the dreams of the king, um, specifically a dream that foretells uh, a horrific famine. Uh, so he is able to foretell that and then also make recommendations for preparing for that famine, becomes the second in command in Egypt. Uh, so then ultimately, when the famine affects the rest of his family, still back in Canaan, he is able to, uh, when they come to Egypt, he's able to effect a reconciliation uh, with his estranged brothers. He is able to provide food for his family and ultimately is able to bring the entire clan to live in Egypt. Um, and this ends up being the start of the fulfillment of a promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 15, that is that that his people, uh, the Israelites, would live in a nation, not their own, um, and, and, and grow to be a great people there, but also suffer there, and then ultimately be delivered from there. So we see that happening in Joseph's lifetime. But um, And when they first come in to Egypt, the Israelites are in a position of favor with the current leadership, um, and they enjoy all kinds of benefits as a result of that. Um, however, um, the, the start of Exodus, so between the closing chapters of Genesis and the start of Exodus, we have several hundred years. Um, the leadership is no longer um, grateful for Joseph's contributions, has no recollection of Joseph. Um, and so you start to see a lot more hostility between the leadership in Egypt and this enormous people that are living in their land. Um, and we'll, I don't want to get into too much of that because I know Victoria is going to read the story for us. So that's that's where we are at the beginning of the story, the tensions between Israel and Egypt and the king trying to take steps to control and, and suppress and weaken this nation that's living there in their midst. Um, on the other side of this story, we're going to see the Moses storyline. Uh, that is God raising up a deliverer uh, in order to to fulfill that promise to bring his people out from Egypt. This will culminate in uh, the night of Passover. So we'll have the 10 plagues, we'll have Passover, we'll have uh, the, the flight out of Egypt, um, and then the crossing of the Red Sea. So a lot of big Sunday school moments coming up in the life of Moses. But this story is sort of nestled right in between them before we've seen Moses uh, come on the scene, before there's been any motion um, on, in this deliverance promise being fulfilled. Um, and we're just in that space of conflict and oppression um, before before Moses comes on the scene. Hopefully that gives us a, a pretty good setting for our story. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, so then with that context in mind, now we're going to read, kind of move into our, our reading discussion. And um, our, our kind of central, not our only reading, but our central reading tonight is Exodus 1, um, specifically the portion of Exodus 1 that deals with this story. So Victoria is going to read it aloud for us, and then she's going to give us a little bit of some information, um, some additional information uh, on the Bible's, uh, the Bible story of the midwives uh, from the Jewish Women's Archive. So why don't you go ahead and do that, Victoria? Sure. Uh, so I'm reading from the New Catholic Answer Bible, and uh, as Katie said, this is not all of chapter 1, but it's going to be... Uh, verses 8 through uh, 22, the end of the chapter. Then a new king, who knew not Joseph, rose to power in Egypt. He said to his people, See, the Israelite people have multiplied and become more numerous than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them to stop their increase. Otherwise, in time of war, they too may join our enemies to fight against us, and so leave the land. 
Accordingly, they set supervisors over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. Thus, they had to build for Pharaoh the garrison cities of Pithom and Ramses. Yet, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians began to load the Israelites. So the Egyptians reduced the Israelites to cruel slavery, making life bitter for them with hard labor at mortar and brick and all kinds of field work, cruelly oppressed in all their labors. The king of Egypt told the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was called Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives for the Hebrew women, look on the birth stool. If it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt had ordered them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this, allowing the boys to live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are robust and give birth before the midwife arrives. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very numerous. And because the midwives feared God, God built up families for them. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, Throw into the Nile every boy that is born, but you may let all the girls live. So that's uh, most of Exodus chapter 1, and uh, as Katie said, I also want to comment a little bit on um, the Pua entry from the Jewish Women's Archive uh, summary of the Bible. There's lots of really illuminating background information there, uh, but I want to focus on a couple of what were the most interesting pieces to me. So first, uh, the Jewish Women's Archive notes that though Pua and Shifra are the only named midwives, they're likely part of a much larger network serving all Hebrew and Egyptian women. Uh, it wasn't surpri entirely surprising to me that the Bible doesn't mention this network of women because historically I think uh, we all know that it is really common uh, for broader female contributions not to make it into canonical texts. Um, what was interesting to me about the archives comments was I initially assumed that uh, Pua and Schiffer's explanation to Pharaoh isn't a question just because uh, men in power don't tend to be overly concerned with what happens inside female spaces. Um, if you want more about that, see our past episode on Susan Glaspell's play Trifles. Uh, but here's what the archive notes about why their explanation doesn't get questioned. Their explanation is probably accepted because of a universal human tendency to dehumanize victims, especially women, as a prelude to depriving them of basic civil rights, reproductive freedom, their progeny, and ultimately their very lives. Uh, I wanted to know uh, what you guys thought of that reading of uh, the justification of their explanation not being questioned. I, on, in some ways, I think it, it that that makes sense if you think of it as dehumanizing in the sense of of kind of um, viewing a group as in some way just made up of, of stereotypes. Because what they kind of say, I mean, they you know they give this generalization. Oh, they're so hardy; they just have the babies. We can't get there in time. And if if he did just you know ex accept that at face value, then that shows that he at least has some stereotypical beliefs about about the, the Jewish people, or at least about the women, that makes him unlikely to question that. Um, and, I mean, 
I, I thought that was interesting too, Victoria, that um, that she she was kind of viewing it that way because it's it's worth pointing out. The Jewish Women's Archive is um, is an encyclopedia, so each article is usually written by a different person, and so all of the different um, the different articles we're going to quote tonight, some of them were written by the same person, but a lot of them were written by different people. So in this case, this is the the writer of the article; it's her interpretation. But I thought that was interesting too because it's it did seem like a big a kind of a big concept to get out of that that he just that he accepted. Um, what they told him. What did you think, Alexis? I would be interested to to read more on how this compares to narratives surrounding ideas about childbirth in slave population in the United States. Um, I, I, my first thought was that this is a reduction of the Israelites to a quasi-animal space, right? Animals don't need midwives. Most of the time, animals deliver fine. They don't seem to be in pain. Like there's this, this, yeah, that was what it made me think of. It's, it's like you're dealing with an animal. Um, And that that certainly was true of, of slave deliveries as well. Um, In the American South, there are slave narratives that note uh, that certain female slaves who acted as midwives were punished for skipping their work for uh, observing deliveries. Um, we know that historically, so I, I think this animal reading is a is a good one um, in terms of, of both cultures. It, it 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 sounded familiar to me, but I didn't want to I didn't want to lay claim to that um, if it wasn't accurate. So thank you um, for supplying that that extra context. Uh, so yeah, I think that fits with what you're saying, Katie, about there being this stereotype, but specifically this subhuman stereotype of these are these are slave labor, these are less than us, less than human, um, other than us, and 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 also even even apart from whatever racial or religious othering you have going on i wonder too if there's a certain amount of um of just what does pharaoh know about childbirth i don't know how involved the men were in egypt in childbirth but if you took someone who'd never been you know never been to a a, the birth of a child never studied anatomy in any of those kinds of of ways and you told them oh this thing happened okay I, i don't know that he would know any different and i just don't know enough about how educated uh, men and royalty specifically were about the childbirth process. I know the article sort of makes the point that maybe he's educating them some about childbirth. I, I'm not sure about that, but I also wonder if there's just a, he's telling them what's going on with the women and he doesn't know. So he has to take their word for it. Well, and was, I think too, that was certainly my initial assumption was like, he just doesn't understand how female spaces work. Yes. And I think, too, if you think about it, this is another reason I'm glad we talked about context. If you think about it, at this point, Farrah has been watching them. They've been laying heavier and heavier and heavier physical tasks on these Israelites. And, you know, and I mean, I realize, too, you know, that a lot of those are placed on the men, but we don't know. I don't know if women are participating or not. But basically, he's just watched these these people continue to be given more and more arduous physical tasks and be able to bear up under that. Not, and not only bear up under that and endure that, but continue to produce children the entire time. So that could be another reason he just didn't question their statement that these is, you know, these women, they're just, they're so, they're so tough. They just have these babies, you know, and they don't even need our help because that would fit with everything else that they've seen of these people the whole time in terms of their physical endurance and their strength and courage. Um, Another thing worth mentioning too is if this is a lie that they're telling, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, if this is a lie that they're telling, it's also a pretty bold lie um, because they're basically saying these women are stronger than your women. So they don't, you know, they don't need our help, 
but that could also be a weird backhanded compliment because Pharaoh might hear that and go, yes, our women, they're too delicate. They're so, they're more delicate. They're not like, and that's where you get back to what you guys were talking about with, you know, well, you know, they're just like beasts in the field having their babies out here. So, and our women, they're delicate. They, they're high maintenance. They need more help, you know, like that. Um, but it is interesting um, to think about. And I will say too, if you, so you were saying if it's a lie, but you know, if for the commentators who land in the, this is not a lie, this is the truth camp, it may very well be that Pharaoh fact checked it and he double checked with a bunch of other people and they're like, nope, it's true. Midwives can't get there in time uh, because the Lord was providing for Israel in this particular way in order to protect them and in order to ensure their growth as a people and their flourishing as a people, even in these horrible circumstances. So I would say for the commentators who land on the, no, this is an accurate statement about what's going on, um, then Pharaoh, Pharaoh is much less, uh, obviously he's not, he's not necessarily naively believing a lie. He's, it's the truth and he may very well have verified it. Let's go ahead and talk about that. So this story is sometimes I've, I've seen it described as one of the first acts of civil disobedience um, because they're refusing to comply with the order that he's given them, which is to kill the baby boys. Um, and let me back up one more step and say the reason why that, because I remember the first time I read this when I, you know, I thought, wait a second, how would, how would it not be noticed um, that they were doing this? But then I thought, but then I was thinking back over all the stuff that I learned, particularly when researching for my dissertation and everything, all the stuff I learned about early birthing practices and really the true power that the midwife held in the birthing room. I mean, you know, she she would have had the authority. She's if she's delivering the baby and, you know, there's not I mean, there would have been a lot of other women in the room. Yes. But the midwife, you know, was in a position of power and she she would have the power to order everyone else to stand further back. For example, um, you know, it, it is very possible that uh, a midwife could do that and it not necessarily be known that she was the one who did it. So, I mean, it's plausible that they could kill these baby boys if they chose to comply with his order. Um in the story, though, we're not told if their statement about the women just delivering before they get there is um, is true or not. We're told they did not kill the baby boys; they let the boys live, and then they tell Pharaoh, "Oh, they had they gave, they had gave birth before we arrived." And so there's, as Alexis just alluded to, there's difference of opinion on the part of Christian commentators as to whether this is a lie or not. So let's talk about that for a minute. Before we talk about commentators, I just want to know from you, when when you read the story, when you when you first encountered the story, how did you interpret it? Did you take it as a lie or did you take it as God's providence making this true? I took it as a lie. Um, Me too. And uh, the more I went back to the text, um, I just, I think when you say they did not obey Pharaoh and they um, I was looking even on uh, different across different translations, and it is very consistently either they let the boys live, or in many translations, it's they saved the boys. Um, and to me, those are those are active active verbs saying that they did not obey. It's not saying they tried to obey, they were unable to obey. Uh, the boys lived in sort of like a passive uh, way without any acknowledgement of their specific role, but it. Yeah, the, they did not obey him. They let the boys live and or saved the boys makes it pretty clear to me that they were making a choice and they could have chosen differently and didn't. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's how I read it, too, because it's it's very clear in sort of oral Jewish tradition that you do not have to follow a law that is unjust. And I think we see this in various Jewish movements of civil disobedience throughout history. 
um, most notably, of course, in, in World War II um, with, the, with the resistance against the Nazis and, and how many sort of secret information networks there were, how many non-Jewish people used those same justifications to hide Jewish people in their houses and businesses, uh, which was, of course, against the law. So I, I saw um, those traditions sort of all being linked together um, and, and this story as, as an, an early part of that. I would agree. I, I always thought of it as a lie, though. I, I think I have my, my personal one of my personal favorite interpretations of the story, which is also possible, is that they were purposely loitering so as not to arrive in time, which is still disobedience. And, you know, yeah, but I, I mean, that, that that's, that's that's another possibility. Right. Is that they are that. Yeah, they're arriving too late, but that that is by design. <laughs> And that it's not, oh, no, look, oh, man, we're just so late. Um, but I personally don't have a problem with the story, even if it's a straight bald-faced lie. Um, and that that's where, you know, the commentaries are going to start to differ. Um, one other thing that I think is interesting about this, and I never thought about it till today, thinking about this story in concert with the Moses story, is if you think of it as some kind of equivocation, like, yeah, they arrived too late, but it's because they made sure that they arrived too late. If you think about the story of baby Moses, Pharaoh told the people to throw the baby boys into the Nile. Well, if Moses' mother had been caught putting him in the basket in the Nile, she could have said, what, I'm putting him in the Nile. Like, you, we're supposed to throw them into the Nile. So that's what I'm doing. And that never occurred to me till today that, that, that the way that she chose to save him was a way that from a distance could have looked like she was complying with the command. And I, that was something that had never occurred to me before. Um, so let's talk about some, some Christian commentaries first and later on we're going to talk about some jewish um, rabbinic commentaries so as alexis alluded to there's difference of opinion so what we're going to kind of do now is kind of go around and we each looked at different christian commentaries and we're just going to kind of give you listeners a sampling of what different christian commentators think or say about the story and if it's a lie if it's not a lie or whatever so um alexis why don't you go first let us know which commentaries you consulted and what they had to say about this uh, this story so I consulted, the two commentaries were Matthew Henry and then John Calvin. Um, I also went ahead and listened to um, ex excerpts of sermons um, by some pastors that I highly respect um, because I thought that that would also be a useful tool. Um, and then um, because because I can. I also went and looked at uh, what Jen Wilkin has to say about this passage um, because I just feel like that's generally a good idea to do. So, um, as you sort of alluded to, with regard to what the Hebrew midwives said, they fall into three camps. Um, one, that they're not telling a lie, but are in fact reporting what happened. Um, Matthew Henry falls into this category, as does one of the pastors that I listened to. Um, there's the camp of they were telling lies, but it was not a bad lie. It was a good lie. It was the, the right thing to do. Um, uh Jen Wilkin falls into this camp, um, and then another pastor that I listened to also um, falls into this camp, uh, sometimes for different reasons. Um, so Jen Wilkin takes the, the truth is not due. We don't have to tell the truth to someone to whom the truth is not due. Um, and then uh, the other pastor uh, basically compared it to a just war theory, um, under the circumstances. Uh, and then there's the view that they were lying and that lie was sin. Um, and that is where um, John Calvin ends up. Um, so, so those are the three camps that I um, looked at. I also went ahead and looked at the Westminster um, Larger Catechism, 
um, because I think it's really helpful um, in their sections on the Ten Commandments. I wanted to see what they listed for um, what it looks like to obey the um, the Ninth Commandment, because uh, they have these really long sections of like what is commanded by the commandment and what is forbidden by the commandment. Um, so that's a really long paragraph, so I won't read all of it. But under what are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment, the duties required in the Ninth Commandment are sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever. And under what are the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment, the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment are, among many other things, concealing the truth, speaking untruth, lying, misconstructing intentions, words, and actions. So those are the the resources that I looked at. And I should say, too, the two sermons that I listened to were by pastors who are at the same church, and they had different views of the passage. So um, it's not like a you can't paint with a broad brush like what kind of people land on which interpretation. That's super interesting. Uh, Victoria, what about you? What did you look at? I looked at several, uh, I actually used this as an excuse to examine um, several different Catholic Bible commentaries, which I haven't really looked at yet. Um, I've started reading the Catholic Bible and I've started examining the catechism, but I hadn't really looked at commentaries. So this was a nice um, excuse to, to jump into that. Um, uh, the one I'm going to talk about is the official Bible commentary of the United States Council of Catholic Bishops. Um, though all three commentaries I looked at, none of them said anything specific about whether the midwives lied or not. It's not something that, uh, that these commentaries address. They talk about historical and social context, uh, and they talk about how this section points forward to Moses and thus to Jesus. Um, but lying was was not directly mentioned. Um, the place that that came up uh, was not the commentaries, but uh, two other places, the catechism and uh, several progressive uh, religious orders, um, my favorite of which was uh, the National Advocacy Center, which is the lobbying arm of the Sisters of the Good Shepherd. Uh, and so the Sisters of the Good Shepherd put out this uh, Catholic Guide to Civil Disobedience, and uh, part of their Guide to Civil Disobedience is a list of um, instances of civil disobedience in the scriptures, and the midwives' responses uh, to Pharaoh in Exodus 1 is first on that list. Um, the, that list also links to specific paragraphs of the Catechism um, that deal with Christians' responsibilities to secular law. And I wanted to, to read from that uh, just for a second. Uh, this is short excerpts from both paragraph, uh, Catholic Catechism paragraph 1902 and paragraph uh, 2242, uh, and they state in part. Quote, a human law has the character of law to the extent that it accords with right reason and thus derives from the eternal law. Insofar as it falls short of a right reason, it is said to be an unjust law and thus has not so much the nature of law as a kind of violence. Uh, so that's paragraph 1902. Paragraph 2242 says, in part, uh, the citizen is obliged in conscience not to follow the directives of civil authorities when they are contrary to the demands of the moral order, contrary to the fundamental rights of person, persons, or contrary to the teachings of the gospel. 
so I thought that was really interesting, both because uh, what I didn't find made sense to me. Uh, church tradition is is really important, and and though uh, personal interpretation of the Bible is encouraged, um, it it made sense to me that there wasn't uh, kind of a lot of emphasis on um, did they lie or not because that's a little more personal than most Catholic commentaries tend to get. Uh, though I, I did, uh, enjoy reading through some of the, uh, some of the progressive religious orders comments on this passage. Thank you so much. Um, I looked at three different, um, three different kind of, uh, sources for commentary. Um, and the earliest one that I looked at is this, um, it's a little book, um, and it is called Women in the Old Testament, and it's by Abraham Kuyper, who was a, a Protestant commentator from the turn of the 20th century. Um, and his little, his book is very interesting because his book on biblical women has this weird kind of – he has this weird kind of almost like a he-man, strong-man attitude about how – in some cases about how these women should have acted. So he in, – in any situation where a woman was – using some kind of dishonesty, like in this story or um, in the Rahab story, um, he seems to feel like that these women should have just openly defied whatever, you know, what, 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 wh- whoever was um, endangering them. Or um, so he says, he says the midwives are lying. Kuiper says the midwives are lying and quote, that lie betrays cowardice and was most certainly in, but the Lord knew the crisis that had given birth to so it's kind of interesting. He, you know, he says this was a, a sin, as Alexis mentioned. He's in that camp. This was sinful, um, but that um, that it was understandable. We'll say that, if not justifiable, it was understandable. Um, and so Kuiper's the earlier one. The other two um, sources that I looked at were more recent. Um, and um, let me find it here. Um, one was just my Reformation Study Bible, which was edited by um, R.C. Sproul, was the main editor for that one, among other people. And I found what I found really interesting about that is that in their commentary on that story in the notes, there's no mention of the lying at all. Sproul um, and his uh, and his other contributors felt no need to comment on it, which was fascinating to me, because um, there's definitely more commentary on the Rahab story in that Bible. So they didn't even feel like it was important to talk about if they're lying, why they're lying, is it okay that they're lying? Um, the other source I looked at was MacArthur, who is um, not my personal fave, but he's his commentaries are extensive, so he has comment commentary on every single Bible story. Um, he is in the um, the camp of saying that their words are true. Because um, he really doesn't want it to be a lie. So he says, and I'm going to read it because it's easier just to read it. He says, quote, rather than trying to argue for a justifiable lie on the part of the midwives seeking to protect God's people, take it as a statement of what was true. Um, colon, God was directly involved in this affair of birth and national growth. That's the key to understanding why no decree of Pharaoh's would work out as he intended it and why Hebrew women were so healthy and gave birth with ease. End quote. So he is kind of maybe looking at the context, like we talked about earlier, of you know God um, aiding this nation to survive and also thrive and continue to reproduce itself, even under extreme physical duress. And he takes that and then looks at this story and says, well, God made this true because that's what he's been doing this whole time um, is you know protecting these people and helping them to thrive and grow. Um, 
And so he kind of takes it as God providentially made their words true. So this is not a lie. The problem with that, and this was, and I, I have to give credit because I can't, you know, I talk to my students every single day about plagiarism. So I'm going to out myself and say, this was something David said today, my husband, this was not something that I came up with, but I think it's totally right. He said, I read that out to him and he said, then if that's true, if everything that they say is true, then there's really no reason for them to be commended. If God made it so that these Hebrew women had these babies before the midwives ever showed up, then there's really no reason for these midwives to be commended because they didn't do anything or declined to do anything. If they weren't even there when the babies were born, they didn't let the boys live like we talked about before. They didn't save the boys. God just made it so that they weren't there. And so it completely avoids that moral choice for them entirely. And that's why I think that view is problematic for me. I don't I don't agree with that one because, you know, for these women to be commended to be given households, as the story says, they must, they have done something significant. And if their moral agency is taken away, if that choice, if they're not, if they weren't there in the birthing room, um, or perhaps like I said earlier, I think that they could still be commended if they were showing up too late on purpose. But if they haven't made some kind of choice, if God just made it so that these babies were born without any assistance, then there's no reason for them to be given these accolades, for them to be have households established for them or anything like that. Um, so uh, that was uh, that was something that had not occurred to me before that I think is a, is a useful thought about the story. Any other comments on this before we move on to um, a, l- a little bit of more talk about the story? Just to distinguished a little bit i think maybe calvin's view from kuiper's since they both landed in the same space of this was a sin um i really appreciated and this was i get i'm supposed to give away the ending but this was where i ended up landing um and 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 what calvin said is uh but i hold that whatever is opposed to the nature of god is sinful and on this ground all dissimulation whether in word or deed is condemned um so wherefore both points must be admitted that the two women lied, and since lying is displeasing to God, that they sinned. Scripture is full of such instances which show that the most excellent actions are sometimes stained with partial sin. But we need not wonder that God in his mercy should pardon such defects, which would otherwise defile almost every virtuous deed, and should honor with reward those works which are unworthy of praise or or even favor. Thus, though these women were too pusillanimous and timid in their answers, yet because they had acted in reality with hardiness and courage, God endured in them the sin which he would have deservedly condemned. Um, and I... I mean, this just fits for me really well with the idea of Calvinism in general, which is every good deed, every act of heroism is affected by the fact that it is committed by a sinner. And so you have these women doing these amazing, brave, terrifying thing. And it doesn't diminish that, I don't think, if maybe it would have been better if they stood as as Peter stands in the New Testament or Stephen or Paul and says, I am going to disobey you or or, or uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even in the Old Testament, and, and took a stand and said, I know I'm going to die for this, but I have to be disobedient and I have to own that disobedience because I'm not going to lie about it. That might have been better, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the point of this passage to critique them, they're and they're fearing God and obeying him with regard to the saving of these children. Um, and, and I think it's important when we read these Old Testament passages not to think everybody has to be 100% good guy or 100% bad guy because it doesn't happen. Um, you have people who are sinners doing all the good things uh, and people who are made in the image of God doing all the bad things. So um, I just I, I feel much more comfortable saying, yeah, they didn't get every perfect thing right in this moment. But they did an amazing, praiseworthy thing 
by saving the lives of these children. And and that doesn't, that's why we have Jesus, right? We need, even our good need, deeds need to be paid for on the cross because we can't do them purely and perfectly. So to me, that, that I, thought, I felt that was a little bit more encouraging and positive and uplifting way of looking at it while still saying God is truth and in him is no lie. And there's a reason why we have a ninth commandment and and any kind of deceit is contrary to that. Uh, it's not because he's wanting them to be macho and, and brave. It's because he's looking to the character of God as the reason behind the commandment. So I think um, it's, um, it's one other thing that I, I thought when I was looking through these, these Christian commentaries, um, particularly with, with the ones that were saying that it was, it was wrong that they had lied is it's interesting to me. And, and I haven't looked, so maybe I need to look, but it's interesting to me that there's this 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 discussion of their lie and and that you know and I mean I I think I think you're right Alexis you know uh, as far as the scripture standards with regard to truth and falsehood are there they're clear um, but you know Moses's mother is also practicing concealment you know when she I mean she disobeys the law to throw to, to 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 kill her own child by throwing him into the Nile and instead conceals him in the basket and makes a secret plan to save his life. So I mean she's also practicing concealment. She's she's hiding him. All of the same she's taking a lot of the same kind of actions to to save her baby as the midwives took to save the other babies. The only difference is she didn't lie to Pharaoh's face about it. So it's interesting that there's this discussion of the midwives and and you know all this thinking through of if the midwives are lying or not, but you don't see that same kind of, you know, ethical or moral wrangling on the part of, of, you know, Moses's mother and what she did. It's just interesting that, um, that that's not, cause to me that the two stories are very similar in that way, but with that, with the difference that the midwives are speaking to him and telling him what appears to be a lie. Well, and I think part of that is because we don't have the same kind of clear instruction on, concealment and and on silence on on you know I, I presumably the new testament church they weren't trotting out to whoever was in authority and saying if you would like a list of all our members here it is um so there there seems to be a way in which secrecy and quiet is maybe not does not implicate the truth of god in the same way as speaking a lie or actively participating in in deceit um and and I say all this as someone who has never had to make these kinds of difficult decisions. I I realize that in the moment, um, the calculus may look very different. And I I but part of what I like about Calvin's point is that he wants to have grace for the actor while still holding up the authority of Scripture and the character of God and saying, look, you may blow it in the moment. There are you know early believers who who caved and who uh, who apostatized, who said, you know, hey, I, I'm I'm not a believer because they were scared. And there's grace for that, and there's there's um, there's redemption for that. And you have people who came back um, and were welcomed back into the church despite all that. Peter has that same story. So um, I like the idea of, of instead of having to pick between you did the right thing 100% or you didn't to say there's grace for you here and God is still perfectly pure and holy and that means something and it may mean something that's terrifying and beyond our ability to uh, to live up to, but we can hold that high and still say there's grace for all of the times we don't live up to that um, without bringing the commandment down or the nature of God or the character of God down to what what we can what we can live with or what what 
make sense to us in the world um, because the Bible and history are replete with examples of um, of times where people did what would end up getting them killed, but it didn't get them killed. Sometimes it does, and God is, has said that he is glorified sometimes through the death of his people. But sometimes you have a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're thrown into the fire, and they walk out unscathed. Um, or you have, you know, Peter in prison or Paul in prison, and and they walk out. Um, so I I don't think, yeah, I just I don't think that that it's necessarily the the best way for us to always be thinking about the ends. I think as Christians, a lot of times it can be more helpful to think about the means. And I think that's a lot of what these commentators are focused on is what are the means and do they match the character of God? Absolutely. And I what and I can't remember which one, but one of the commentators at least had also said that what really matters is why they do what they do. Um not you know, I mean it, that the motivation um is also is really more important and the motivation is that they fear God, that that's why they take the actions that they do. Um before we move on to talking about the Jewish sources, I just wanted to ask you guys go back a little bit ways and just say um do you feel like how does it um how does it illuminate the story for us or does it change the story for you when um, the stuff that Victoria was talking about from Jewish Women's Archive that they probably were the leaders of a whole team or organization of midwives? How does that change the story for you or does it? Uh, I think it makes it cooler <laughs> because there's this, um, you know, re resistance happens when individual people find like-minded individual people and they work in really tiny ways but hundreds or thousands of really tiny ways that kind of knit together and and make social change um you see it all throughout history you see it um in sophie shawl and the white rose movement you see it in uh in world war ii so many female code breakers uh in the bletchley circle for example uh took their code breaking equipment in their sewing bags because why would police search their sewing bags because that's not important um you know and so these are like teeny tiny often feminized things that when hundreds or thousands of people do them change the course of history um so i yeah i think that is important and i i also think that um it, it helps us to remember um that the the fact that we only have two named midwives here is important. Um, as as Virginia Woolf famously said, um, anonymous was probably a woman. There are so many unnamed people in history who did so much positive work, um, but but we don't know who they are because their uh, contributions due to their gender were not always thought as valid. So yeah, I, I think that's huge. Sort of building off of what you're saying, Victoria, one of the things that Jen Wilkins says about this passage that I love is that the the very order made by Pharaoh um, to kill the baby boys implies the women don't matter, right? Daughters are of no consequence. Um, and that then God's response to that is, oh, you think that daughters are of no consequence. The daughters of Israel, the Hebrew midwives, are the ones who will subvert your efforts. Uh, a daughter named Joshebed will give birth, will conceal her child, and with bravery, place him in a basket, put him in the reeds. Her daughter will watch to make sure that this deliverer is delivered safely into the hands of your daughter, Pharaoh. Uh, so daughters are of no consequence. I beg to differ. It is daughters who were the first deliverers of the nation of Israel. Um, it's not, obviously not focusing just on the, the network of midwives, but that same idea of um, of the contributions of 
of women that may not go, they may not be noticed, um, but are nonetheless significant. One thing I think that is really interesting about that too, is if you, if, if you take it that they are in charge of a team of other women, I think that that makes their, their actions even more impressive in some ways, because that means that they're laboring also under the burden of leadership. So they haven't just been asked by Pharaoh to do something that is repugnant and and evil, but that they've been asked to do this and they are um, resolute in their fear of God and their determination not to do it. And if, but if they're in charge of a team, if they're, if they're two of many, then they, they perhaps, because again, this is all speculation, had to, had to convince other, these other midwives to, to take the same actions, right? Like if they're not the only two midwives working, then you know, they are, but this is how they feel. And they're the spokes midwives because <laughs> they're the ones, you know, that the king calls in, then presumably they are in charge. And so um, there could have been, you know, there's just, there's so much else, I think, so much else that was probably part of the story that, you know, the Bible chooses not to tell. Um, but I, I, I was even, it makes it an even more um, amazing story if you think about them as also operating under the burden of leadership and of uh, being examples for other midwives too around them um well let's let's move on um so night at some jewish commentaries and i wanted to do this because we talked about how um there's not a lot of attention given to these particular women um kind of on the christian side that we were able to find obviously multiple commentaries that had some mention um by contrast the uh, the the Hebrew commentaries are extensive, um, and there's tons of stuff about Shifra and Pua, um, and so I'm gonna give I'm gonna try to keep it brief. There's so much here. Um, I'm gonna try to give um, some uh, some different uh, things from the rabbinic commentaries. Um, everything that I'm getting, listeners, just from. JWA, the Jewish Women's Archive. It's a great website. Um, if you have any interest in um, Jewish perspectives on, uh, and obviously, I mean, on that website, they have tons of different articles about all different kinds of women throughout Jewish history. Um, but from the Christian side, there are, um, for a Christian, the part that you might appreciate most is the the different um, Jewish commentaries that are given about um, biblical women that we also study, right? Um, and what I'm talking about tonight are um, rabbinic commentaries called the Midrash and Agada. And um, I'm going to try to define these um, in a way that makes sense because a lot of this is still new for me too. Um, but basically, Midrash and Agada are two types of non-halakhic literary um, output or activity of the rabbis. Non-halakhic just means it's, it's not about legal codes. Um, and... So these are basically interpretations or um, amplifications of non-legal texts. And um, and sometimes they're used interchangeably, but sometimes they're not. Um, and there's actually a really interesting article on the website about that terminology and what does Midrash and Agata mean. Um, and I'm going to link all of this stuff, listeners, um, in the show notes, all these different articles. Um, so they actually on that website have separate articles for Shifra and Pua, um, but a lot of the information is the same in both. Um, so the most interesting thing to take away from the Midrashic texts about these women is that the rabbis um, identified them with other known biblical women, um, usually 
Um, and, and the way Tamar Kadari says it, who wrote the article on Puas, she says um, that the rabbis identify the midwives with various biblical heroines, thereby transforming them from secondary characters to central, fully developed figures whose annals spread over additional chapters of the Torah. So um, there's varying, various rabbis had various different views, but most of them um, equate Shifra and Pua with Joshabed or Jacobed. Um, listeners, we're not Hebrew scholars, so we may mispronounce these names. If we do, please forgive us. Um, a lot of the rabbis identify these two midwives, and they say that they were actually, they're just different names for Jacobed, the mother of Moses, and Miriam, the sister of Moses. Um, they see them as the same. Um, the other interpretation is that they were Jochebed and her own mother-in-law, Elisheba, daughter of Amenadab. Um, and that's pretty much how the rabbis were seeing it. As best I can tell from these kind of summaries of Minrashic text, the rabbis were taking these two midwives as being these other named characters, usually Jochebed and Miriam. Um, and... That's really interesting because taken from that point of view, if you see them as the same women who are participating in the story of Moses, um, that makes the, the similarities between those stories really interesting. Um, and again, as you know, as Christians on our side, this is not how we interpret the story, obviously. So I'm, I'm giving a totally different view, but um, they they see these, um, these two midwives as being these other women. Um, and... What that leads to is lots and lots of discussion about what the names Shifra and Pua mean. Because if they're seeing these two midwives, and, and the, when I first started reading these Midrashic commentaries, I was really confused by that. And I thought, you know, why endlessly talk about what these names mean? And then I thought, well, actually, that makes perfect sense. Because if you think that this is really Jacobed and Miriam, then the names Shifra and Pua are like nicknames or something, or, you know, they're, they're meant to be there. The name is given, the other name is given to represent or to say something about that woman. So in that way, it makes perfect sense that they might endlessly talk about what these names could mean about the woman in question, because they're in that, in that scenario, they would be metaphorical or a kind of nickname anyway. So, um, just to give a few ideas. Um, so, um, Because, uh, and actually, let me go back. So for Shifra, for example, um, on what the meaning of the name, um, it, this is from uh, Kadari's article about Shifra. She says, most of the rabbinic uh, traditions identify Shifra with Jacobed. She was called Shifra because she would cleanse Mesha Peret, the newborn, by washing it and cleaning it after birth. Another etymological explanation is that the Israelites were fruitful, Shiparu, and multiplied in her time because of her. Um, or that she herself was fruitful and multiplied. In another tradition, she shifra her actions before God, i.e. performed good deeds that were pleasing to the Lord. Um, and then in another midrash, she says that she smoothed over shifra, her daughter's words, because Pua had spoken impudently to Pharaoh. Um, it goes on from there. And there are a million different interpretations of what is meant by shifra. Um, and so that's Shifra, Pua's name, um, also has these etymological explanations. Um, 
Why was she called Pua? Because she appeared, Hophia, with good deeds for Israel, like going with her mother to the expectant mother. According to another etymological explanation, she would bleat Poa like a sheep to the woman in labor, which acted as a stimulus and aided the woman to deliver. Um, and then another was about her, that same kind of story of impudence to Pharaoh. So they, these etymological um these etymological explanations for the names then kind of get translated into um, part of the the character profiles, if you want to call them that, of these women. Um, and I found that really, really interesting. Um, other things in the the Midrashic text about these women, besides the the name backgrounds, um, the funniest part to me of these Midrashic accounts, I wrote down in my notes, rabbis don't noth- don't know nothing about birth and no babies. Because they say, the rabbis maintain, uh, Kadari says, the rabbis maintain that when Pharaoh commanded the midwives to kill the sons, he also taught them the secrets of the birth process to aid them in implementing his decree. As if they wouldn't already know, being professional. I say that when he told them to look at the birth stool, the stones, um, he entrusted them with an important sign, namely that when a woman is about to give birth, her thighs become as cold as stone thus teaching them when her time was near, which made me laugh out loud the first time I read it. Um, And then also uh, the rabbis say that the Pharaoh gave them another important sign, which is that a male child comes out with his face turned downward, looking at the earth from which he was created, while a female child is born with her face turned upward, looking at the rib from which she was formed, and that that's how the midwives can know the sex of the infant, even if the baby's not fully born yet. And that just made me laugh so hard when I read it because I thought, like you were talking about Victoria or no Alexis, whichever one of you guys said, would the Pharaoh have had any idea what was going on in the birthing room? And I was thinking when I read this, um, no, probably he did not. And neither did these rabbis who were writing these commentaries. If they feel like that Pharaoh was legitimately teaching these midwives, something they didn't already know about birth. I thought that was really funny. Not Um, that I want to defend his mansplaining because it made me angry too, but I will say like we have nonsense old wives tales about, related things too right like if you carry oh, yeah, if yeah. you carry high it's a boy and if you carry low it's a girl or like which way the string falls and how many circles it turns means one gender or the other like i i felt like what he was saying was that type of thing you know no that's true we absolutely have that and i think that i felt that way more about the whole the woman's thighs get as cold as a stone before she has the baby or something like that. Cause that to me seems something that's easily disproven. If you've ever seen one person having a baby. Um, and I, you know, part of it too, is I, I, I know that, you know, that men would have been excluded. I mean, from the birthing room and that's just true. I mean, as recently as gosh, is it the 16th century, when I was doing research for my dissertation, I found this hilarious account of a doctor, a male doctor who really, really wanted to do midwifery and the women wouldn't let him into the birthing room. And so he straight up army crawled his way into the room across the floor while everybody else was distracted to watch the birth happen because he wanted to learn and they wouldn't let him in. Um, and so, you know, it's just interesting that they, you know, that they have Pharaoh telling them, you know, what to be doing in their, in their female space. The one other thing, and then I'll stop because there's so much of this. The one other thing that's most interesting to me in these Midrashic, Midrashic texts is the rabbis said that when Pharaoh summoned the midwives to his palace, he tried to seduce them. And they get that from the wording of verse 17. The midwives did not do as the king of Egypt had spoken to them, which the word there is, lehen, instead of as he told them, lahen. 
Um, and that word alehen is, they say, implies that he wanted to have sex with them because it is similar to the, the term for that, which is lavo alehen. So they take, again, they take an etymological interest, an etymological thing in the text and say, clearly he tried to seduce him, them, but they refused his advances. Um, so I thought that was interesting too. Um, it's just another example of the text kind of informing the interpretation in a really etymological way, the structure of the word. Um, what did you guys find? You guys read these two. What did you guys find anything interesting in these midrashic commentaries that I have not already mentioned before? My favorite detail uh, is the rabbinical note that the invite, the advice to murder Hebrew babies, comes from an advisor to Pharaoh. Uh, who justifies it like this, uh, um, that says, instead you should murder female babies because if there are no females, from where will the males take wives? One woman cannot marry two men, but one man can marry ten or a hundred women. So thus you should kill the female babies. Uh, I thought that was really interesting because I think it, um, I mean, it's still pretty sexist, but also it inverts um, some of the assumptions that Alexis was talking about earlier that we see, I think, more often that um, women don't really have a lot of social power and aren't entirely, um, you know, they're not whole human beings, socially speaking. So I thought, um, though further rabbis say, you know, this was obviously unwise counsel because et cetera, et cetera, um, I, I thought that it was interesting that that perspective was included. One of the commentaries I read uh, specifically pointed out from that same detail that Pharaoh's goal was to continue to have a robust slave population, um, but not have to worry about armed uh, rebellion. And so so some people, I think, have taken that and said, you know, if, if the goal is to re reduce the rate of reproduction Yes, I understand the, the 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 rabbinic point here that like, well, you're 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 not doing that well um, with with this plan that you have. But at least one commentator that I read said, well, no, the reduction of population was not the goal. Which I'm not sure we we have a ton of support for that from the text. But the idea they still wanted the labor, uh, they just didn't want the same risk of armed rebellion, and so that was why um, the male children were the targets, which I thought was an interesting spin on that particular approach. Also a commonality to uh, thoughts behind American slave rebe rebellion, too, um, which, of course, we know that uh, rape of female slaves by white masters was incredibly common and justified in similar ways. Right. Yeah, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of similarities. Uh, as far as my thoughts on the on the Midrash sources, I'm not entirely sure what to do do with them, um, partly because some of the stuff um, seems to me, based on my you know, reading of the Bible as a Protestant Christian my whole life, um, just seems pretty far out. Um, and because I want to, with sources like this, I'm, I always want to make sure that we're upholding the doctrine of the perspicacity of Scripture, um, and that we know from the text the text is sufficient. It's sufficient to communicate to us what we need to know. And there's lots of stuff that's not included in the text that's really interesting. Um, but but I th I think I read something like this and I, I just, I, I'm not sure what it has to do with the reason that the story is in the Bible, because those kinds of details are not in the Bible. If, if God wanted me to know that Shifra and Pua are Joshebed and Miriam, 
there's ways to communicate that. I don't think that that's something that that we could be expected to get from just the Bible. And and I say that knowing that the secondary sources have value. We've been talking about commentaries. Um, I think those are, are hugely valuable resources. But I always get a little nervous when we start getting into what this really means based on, uh, you know, the the word histories or the related words or that sounds like this um, this other word. Then therefore we're making connections. Um, so I, I honestly read all of it and was like, well, I have no, I have no way of knowing how liable or, or historical any of this is. I don't know enough about the Midrash to know if it is, uh, based on a, a, a system that values historical accuracy highly, or if it's largely allegorical and, you know, taking the type of Shifra and Pua and conflating them with the type of Joshebed and Miriam. And wouldn't it be cool if they were the same person and that's as far as it goes, or if there's some kind of evidence somewhere that they are, in fact, the same person. So I, I had a little bit of trouble knowing how to interact well with these particular sources. Um, and I think it, and in many ways, actually diminishes the contributions of women to say the only women who who have anything heroic to do in this story are um, the ones who are related to Moses, and nobody else does anything important. Um, I like that there are other people who are in no way connected directly, maybe, to the line of Moses, who are still faithfully fearing the Lord, and that obedience and that faith has repercussions for for history and makes a difference. So I actually, I understand expand their roles, but I think you actually end up diminishing um, the role by reducing the number of women who are participating in the story. I would agree with that. Um, when I when I taught the class, one of the reasons we looked at these midrashic texts is in part just because when 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 I did it, we we were walking through the biblical text about all of the women. But then I also we also took it further in time and we looked at the kind of tradition of that woman in you know church history. So like we talked about the Bible text with our Old Testament ladies, we also talked about the Jewish commentaries, later Jewish commentaries, right? What were people thinking about these women later on in time? And then we would look at more recent Christian commentaries. We looked at the art history of all of these women, if there was any. So um, I think the main interest for Christians in these Midrashic texts is just to see kind of the, 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 the interpretive life of what people were thinking about these women um, in other venues at other times. Um, I personally agree with you. I, I like more women in the story if I can get them. And I, I do think that it is reductive to say, well, that must have been these other two women who we already get more stories about. Um, one other thing that I think is interesting and, and that I forgot to say before is there are a, f- a few of these rabbinic commentaries don't follow that line. And they say that these women weren't even Jewish, that they were pious converts, Egyptian converts to the faith of the Hebrews. Um, And so they take it as the Hebrew midwives, not to mean midwives who were Hebrew, but to mean midwives to the Hebrews. Um, That's super interesting. Again, we can't know if it's true or not, but there were some rabbis who who didn't say, oh, clearly this is Jacobin and Miriam, who instead thought that these maybe were Egyptian women who were converts. one other thing in those Midrashic texts that is interesting is the impulse that made that makes them want to connect and say these these are Moses's relatives, these midwives. Um, one reason they do that too is because the verse about that they were gifted, how, given households, God established households for them. Um, if they say that they are Jacobet and Miriam, then that means that they get to understand those households as priestly, Levitical, or royal households. Basically, um, I think it was Kadari said um, pointed out that that connects that these women with the leadership of the next generation. 
So it's a way of making them have continued importance if you say that they're Jacobet and Miriam, which I also thought that was interesting. One other thing that I was going to say that I, I didn't put in the show notes because I, I forgot. Um, one other person that I read on this topic is a woman, uh, Leah Cohn at Torah, uh, Torah.org. And she has a whole um, lecture that then was turned into the, an article about these women. But one point she makes that I think is super interesting on the point of did they lie or, you know, what was the nature of their their dishonesty to Pharaoh. Um, but she, she kind of puts forward this interpretation that, um, they, that, um, let me find it. Here it is. Um, she says, and I'm just going to read cause, um, it's easier than trying to summarize. She says that their greatness does not lie only in the fact that they did not kill their fellow Jews. This we expect from every Jewish woman. Rather, what is extraordinary is that under the circumstances, they had the cool and the ability to think and come up with an original solution. They knew that saying no to Pharaoh and losing their lives would only result in the appointment of another two Jewish midwives for the task. These two might be spiritually weaker and willing to give in to Pharaoh's demand with the resulting termination of the Jewish nation. So they say yes to Pharaoh, while to themselves they said, we'll find a way to get out of this. But we won't give Pharaoh the option to approach other midwives because we don't know who those others will be. That was fascinating to me. That, and again, speculation, right? But that's another kind of um, interpretive possible motive put forth for the their choice not to openly defy, like you were talking about, Alexis, is that, um, you know, open defiance could have led to their deaths, as you mentioned earlier. And then at, at that point, what would have happened? And at least, you know, um, Cone, this particular Jewish um, scholar is saying, well, what's possible is they may have just been replaced by people who would have chosen differently. And I think that's also kind of an interesting um, angle to take. And this is all just um, interesting speculation. Um well, we have, um, we're about ready to move on to the final, um, our final bit and, and do our passing on, but I just wanted to give you guys one more chance. Was there anything else that you wanted to say about this story or any of the things we've been talking about tonight? No, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Okay. We're going to move on to our last, um, sex segment, which as always is passing on. Um, so, uh, Victoria, what are you going to recommend tonight? Um, I feel like my recommendation is a little bit silly, because uh, it's something that I just watched on television that I have been an enthusiastic fan of on the podcast before that I feel like relates to some of what we're talking about uh, tonight. I'm recommending the 2019 Call the Midwife Christmas special. Uh, I'm on record as being a huge Call the Midwife fan. We did an episode about that show a couple years ago, and I think this year's Christmas special in particular has a lot to say about the progressive power of a group of midwives who are incredibly committed to helping um, people who can't help themselves, helping socially disempowered people um, in the case of this year's uh, Christmas special. It's people in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland who are very rural and very um, disconnected from um, from the mainland and from modern technologies, uh, and standing up for what is right because their faith tells them to. So that's my recommendation. This year is called a Midwife Christmas Special. I'm really looking forward to seeing it, Victoria. I've watched everything else up to now, but that one hasn't. I don't think it's on Netflix yet, so I haven't had. Where did you, Where did you watch it? Uh, on the PBS app, I have watched it twice so far. Okay. Well, maybe I will have to get the app because I've been wanting to watch that one since I heard where it was set. Um, Alexis, what about you? What are you recommending tonight? Um, well, I have two recommendations. Um, one, partly because of all of the discussion about interpreting texts and what do names mean and all of that. 
Um, one is called Exegetical Fallacies by uh, D.A. Carson uh, that just goes through some of the ways that we can sometimes hear the word exposited um, that are maybe not as reliable as we think they are, um, like grammatical fallacies or logical fallacies or word study fallacies. So um, that book, I think, is just a useful tool to have in mind as we as we consider any um uh, any kind of exegesis that we're looking at. Uh, the other recommendation is um, an episode of another podcast called Prophetic Politics. Um, it is uh, hosted by um, the the two hosts at the beginning. I haven't listened far enough to hear who the third host is who joins in. But the, the at the beginning, uh, the hosts are Thabiti Anyabwile and Nick Rodriguez, um, both of whom are uh, politically progressive um, in many ways, but they're theologically conservative, and they deal with another a number of different issues um, that Christians encounter in the political sphere. Uh, specifically, I'm recommending the episode on gun control because one of the the topics that they discuss is uh, the idea of um, a motivation behind protecting um, gun rights. Uh, being that we want to have the guns so we can overthrow the government if the need arises. And so how to think well about armed revolt as Christians and what place that has for us. So it's not not just civil disobedience, but an actual resistance or armed rebellion and what place that has um, for Christians, uh, which is just an interesting conversation, um, particularly for me living in a a pretty red corner of a fairly pink state uh, where people are pretty passionate about their guns. Um I don't hear a lot of people sort of picking apart um, whether or not it's justifiable to uh, to continue to support um, gun rights with this goal of of having the option open for armed rebellion. Uh, so I just appreciated their conversation about that. It's it's loosely related to what we talked about today because again, it's it's amplifying that civil disobedience into uh, potentially um, armed resistance. But it's worth a listen. Thanks. Um, well, Victoria, you said that you thought your um, recommendation was silly, which I don't think it is. I think mine probably is, um, but I'm okay with that. So um, I recently stumbled on uh, a great series of articles at the AV Club website called When Romance Met Comedy. Um, and Alexis shared one the other day, um, and a different friend had shared the same um, the same article a few days before, and I kind of fell down a rabbit hole, and I've been reading all through um, the articles because I am a person who, in my Younger days in college, absolutely adored romantic comedies. Now that I'm older, I have a different relationship with that particular genre. And a lot of them that I used to like, I don't like anymore. Um, though there are some that I still have always enjoyed. But the particular one, and and all of these articles are written by a woman, Caroline Seed. Seed. I'm not totally sure how to pronounce her last name. Um, but the one I'm recommending is very recent, uh, December 20th, 2019. And it is about the film The Holiday. Um, and the the headline is with just two storylines, the holiday paid tribute to the entire rom-com genre. Um, this one was really interesting to me because I have never liked the movie The Holiday ever, <laughs> ever since I saw it. Um, but reading through it and reading through her kind of connection of the story to the genre as a whole and the different things that are happening in that film and how they're kind of encapsulating different tropes from the whole genre actually kind of gave me a different view of the movie. It made me feel a little bit more... Um, interested made me want to watch it again um and so that's going to be my recommendation is um caroline sides uh article about the holiday another thing i loved about that article is that was the first time i encountered the idea of the and a man storyline um 
that she said was coined by someone else, the idea that you have a story where there is a romance, but it, it the romance itself is not the main point. Um, love happens, but it's um, in addition to another story. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting concept. And I kind of realized that all the rom-coms I actually like really are and a man stories. So, um, okay. Well, listeners, thank you for um, bearing with us tonight as we did um, got into the weeds uh, with this particular story. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to get in touch with us, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle um, at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Um, for Alexis Neal and Victoria Reynolds Farmer, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks when we will discuss the intersectional politics of Dolly Parton. Um, until then, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.